look at Psalm 45. It's going to be just verse 7 tonight of Psalm 45. Give me a second to find it with sticky pages myself. Okay, let's start back in verse 6, if you will. Start back in verse 6. Um, the psalmist writes, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is the scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now, um, I want to stop right there because that's, the, that's our focus for the night. Now, we started this a few weeks ago. I guess this is the fifth week of it, in which we start talking about, and it, was, it, was, it was Brother Kyle on a, on, a, on a Sunday night got me thinking, and, and talked about some things in Acts chapter 3, verses 14 to 47, where it really laid out, not in the only place, it's really very similar lists are given uh, by Dr. Luke throughout the book of, the early stages of the book of Acts, where you can start to see these distinctives, this may be the, the only term we have, to be honest with you where it talks about what's that new church supposed to look like. If we're going to be something different, because the church we've got is, the New Testament church is just a different entity that's ever existed. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the, and the prophets. It's built on that foundation of, in many ways, folks, the, the, the old, uh, the temple, uh, the Judaic temple. But it's not the same. It doesn't work the same. Um, it's not, there isn't really a priesthood, for instance. It's not the same. And so, how do we look like that? One of those things that we always know is this thing. If we can make what we do here match what was done in the first century, we ought to feel we are on solid ground. Understanding, of course, that we are going to deal with old sins repackaged. Right? Um, they lived in a pornographic culture. In a Greco-Roman culture. I mean, people put it on the outsides of their houses. Like, literally, um, frescoes that were pornographic in nature and would be the first thing people saw about your house. So the, the culture, our culture isn't more necessarily um, vulgar than theirs was just because it's 21st century it's just we've taken that old pension for, uh, for that and we have repackaged it into a new way. You don't have to put it on your house. It's now available online, for instance. And we know that the, what I'm talking about right now will be passe in 10 years. There will be new delivery systems. Sin is always going to reinvent itself in that way. So, so we know that we're going to have to deal with things that maybe Paul didn't think of. But the basic idea Paul did, the basic idea Paul dealt with in his letters, the basic idea Christ preached about, the prophets spoke about, it's there. It's there. We're going to deal with these things. There's no doubt about it. But, but we know we may have to deal with it in a new form that is exactly mentioned. Now, having said that, we're in, in week five, and week five is, is gladness. And um, I want to talk about it in as much detail as I can get, as much as I kind of kind of you know, uh, had to really struggle with this today. So let's get started. The, the psalmist describes the extension of joy 
of the joy of salvation to the redeemed by using the term oil of gladness. Now, you could, I could write books about the idea of oil of gladness, but the fact of the matter is from the very earliest commentators I can find, and I read a lot of commentators, to be honest with you guys, from the very earliest ones, oil of gladness is just the influence of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. It's how God takes the natural joy that comes with salvation and makes it a lifestyle for us. That's the thing that's going to get me, and I'm going to talk, it, talk to you about it in more detail as we get there. Folks, what stung me about this was, well, a couple things. One thing is this. I get a lot of requests from people of all ages, but a lot more from older folks than from younger folks, that essentially boil down to, we want to know how to read the Bible. And I think I've given you this one before. Guys, you don't need to know how to read the Bible, because you already know how to read the Bible. I mean, it's in English on your lap. You know how to read it. What you need is for somebody to teach you how to follow it. That's the problem. Because more often than not, what are we going to say? You can't be saying what it says. And as you get older, hard things from the Bible don't get easier. They can feel even harder than they did when you were young. When you're young, you can reinvent yourself like that, right? A 20-year-old can change their stripes in a second. A 70-year-old cannot change, it does not feel like they change their stripes. They feel like they are indelibly etched into their soul. But the reality is that God's calling us at every age to change, to become more like Christ. Uh, the Bible isn't a mystery, really. You know, there are going to be some things that are difficult. The, the Trinity is a difficult concept to understand. But the reality is you can be a vibrant believer and, and not exactly understand every nuance of the Trinity. Because the Bible is so much about how to live your life. That's why gladness stung me today. Because the Bible is telling me how to live my life. And essentially what it's saying is that, Tony, you are not a glad person. And I started to realize that most of the believers I know aren't glad. And even a lot of the ones that I know that are, are really faking it. You ever been in a church where everybody felt they had to fake it? That to not be absolutely giddy, happy, grinning from ear to ear every day over Jesus? Man, there was something wrong with your soul? I've been to those churches before. Because if you're not grinning literally like the Cheshire Cat, people think that you're lost. There's no reality to it. It was all a fake. It was a show. It was a show. It was for everybody else. It wasn't really here. It was all superficial. And then I realized that, that usually I was a sourpuss and that even a lot of people I know that were trying not to be sour, but really deep down were just as sour as I was. Now here's the deal. And I'm going to say this later on, but I'm going to say it twice so you remember it. Here's the deal. I need somebody to teach me how to be glad. And so do you. We need God to teach us how to do these things. The Bible clearly declares that we're to be glad. That, that our joy manifests itself in this daily gladness. And that I don't know how to do that. I can study all the Bible I want to, and I don't know how to do it yet. I'm 53 years old and studying it most of my whole life. I can't, I've lost count how many times I've read through it. But understand this much. I still have not managed to learn how to be glad all the time. And there are many times in which I'm just downright bitter about things. I know, I know enough theologically to struggle with my own bitterness. I don't surrender to my bitterness, but it's still there. I want to be glad. I want this oil of gladness upon me. I want this Holy Spirit-driven joy. To do that thing for me. So, so what I'm going to do here is, I'm going to continue to walk through this, and prayerfully together, we can start to make some headway on that. Okay. Um, 
since I began to wrestle with this topic, the constant prayer of my heart is that our Lord would bless me with the enduring gladness that characterizes the deep connection to Christ and His Word. Now I'm saying this, confessing it to you. I think the reason why my gladness is challenged is not because there are things going on in my life that rob me of gladness, but simply because I didn't have a deep enough connection to Christ and His Word. If I have a deep enough connection to Christ and His Word, I get that kind of enduring kind of aspects of that relationship with Christ. That there's still aspects of my life that are superficial. They're on the outside and don't strike really, really deep. The roots aren't there. So therefore I'm requesting roots. I know enough now, at least I can confess it to you, to pray for this. The fruit of the mature life in Christ is that the Word, even when it rebukes, it sows joy in the life of the one who loves God. Now that's that deep connection. Um, I've used this example before because I've had several people in, in not a, exactly a short ministry make, the, uh, make this statement to me. And that was, how come when I read the Bible, every page I turn, all I do is cry? And I'm reminded of that, of that passage in Nehemiah chapter 8 when the temple was being rebuilt and, and, and for, for these Jews that are returning from that first diaspora, right, who've been brought back out of Babylon and into, after 70 years, and they're into, into their homeland in Jerusalem. These are the tribe of Judah, right? When they've been brought back in and they take out the book and they just read it and explain it. It's not Billy Graham pounding on the pulpit or something like that. It's just people reading the Bible and everybody wails so much that the leaders go around and tell them to hush. This is not the day to wail. Go home and eat and enjoy yourself. How powerful the Word is supposed to be in our lives. That it really is supernatural in its nature. It's not dead. It's not just words on a page. The Bible gives us those, those examples. So that even if it's against me, there's joy in it. I'm thankful that the Bible told me I was wrong about something. I'm thankful that I found out that my gladness is trash. Thankful. Thankful that God said, you, you've spent too much time worried about things. You should be glad. The psalmist admits his understanding of the bankruptcy of human life when he writes... In Psalm 19, verse 96, saying, I've seen a limit to all perfection. Now, I believe his declaration there is, is that he's looked out upon a mature and a completed world, and it's just, it doesn't, it's, it's not perfect. If something's perfect, it's limitless. It's not perfect. Everything has an end and a finite value that decreases with time and familiarity. I guess the best way, I always use this as an example, I think because I'm just, don't have any good examples. Um, I, I can imagine being on the seashore, someplace that's really beautiful. Um, Mole St. Nicholas, Haiti, is beautiful like postcard beautiful, right? I may have told you before, the water is so deep blue, I reached my hand down and touched it, and I really felt like I would bring it out, and it would be stained. It looked like indigo in the bay there. It was so blue. So beautiful, you can't imagine and I can imagine being like those people that live in mole. They don't notice it's pretty anymore. They don't know anything else. I'm struck with it. I just want to stare at it. The handful of times we got to go, Russell. Just stare at how beautiful it is. Even when they're incredibly poor, like in our little village, right? It's still the most beautiful place you've ever seen. 
It looks like a movie should be shot there. And I get, but they're used to it. They don't notice it anymore. See, with time and familiarity, the, what we might call perfect just fades after a while, doesn't it? What we call beautiful becomes pretty. And then it becomes cute. It decreases in value. That which sinfully allures my heart grows with my greed and appetite. Now we've seen that played out time and time again. Not just in what impresses me, doesn't impress me later, but in the fact that what anybody you've ever met who struggled with addiction can explain this to you. What satisfies you today only whets your appetite tomorrow. Because sin is a greedy monster that wants to, wants to kill and destroy. That wants to rob. And what satisfies it today doesn't satisfy it at all. That's within me. My greed and my appetite will overwhelm that. But in, in response, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. But yet there's no end to the Word. The Word of God forever satisfies. If I have a, a million lifetimes to go through it, I'm never going to become bored with it when I really surrender myself to it. I know that sounds so weird about a book. Because books are finite. You read it once and maybe you read it twice or three times. But none of them you read every single year for the rest of your life. And find something new every time you read it. Right? But this does that. Every time I walk through it. Man, I'm like, I never saw that before. And I'm like, how many hundreds of times have been through that passage? I find passages I've preached 20 times. And there's something brand new sitting right there staring at me. Because the, the Bible isn't, isn't manageable like that. It's not just a finite book. The Word never disappoints the believing heart and it always satisfies our needs. Only content when obsessed by the Word of God. Believers have no recourse but to admit, to proclaim, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. That's verse 97 of Psalm 119. Meditation, the focusing of intellect and emotion on the eternity of the Scriptures is the work of the Holy Spirit in crafting our emotional and intellectual life to suit the glory of the Lord. Then meditation is one of those things. I don't know why we don't meditate. I suspect the reason why we don't meditate on the Word of God, even though the Word of God absolutely declares we're supposed to meditate on it, is because there are a lot of, of Protestants that are terrified of being mystics. It sounds mystical to them. It sounds what the people we look down on do. But yet the Bible absolutely declares that we're to meditate. Not just study it, not just devote to it, not just read it, not just be taught it, but meditate on it. Meditate on the Scriptures. Look at yourself in the mirror and recite passages. Because you know at this moment in your life they apply to you. Make it at that type of, a, that, that type of, that type of intimacy with the Word of God. By way of the gospel and the powerful anointing of the Holy Spirit, the, tr the truth that the Lord instills in our hearts enables simple believers like ourselves to embrace through altered attitudes and remastered priorities the essence of the newness we have in Christ. What we're talking about is, is how to capture that thing. Now, I, I don't know how to, how to explain this. and if I, I'm going to get as far as I get today. And if I have to come back to it, I'll just come back. But here's the thing. Um, I, I'm... As a pastor, but also just as a guy that some people identify as a believer on, job, on my job and places like that, I get to interact with people about their faith in ways that oftentimes aren't even um, initiated by myself. They want to ask a question. 
And one of those things I see that I've got no other way to say it but this is you will detect in people who've made professions of faith what I think I'm going to call buyer's remorse. I don't think they're going back on their faith. It's maybe a bad term. But what I mean is this, is that they get into this faith and it uses, to be honest, in, in the Bible Belt among, among evangelical Protestants, it more often starts with a whole lot of weeping and shaking, doesn't it? With, with being this, this, this profession that was, um, that was deeply emotional and deeply personal, right? In which somebody of age struggled with oftentimes turning their back on everything they had at one time valued or believed to embrace a brand new walk of life. And they are, for lack of a better term, shaken by the experience. So it starts very emotional, but over time, it cools. And what I think these believers are asking me is, isn't there something more to this? I thought it was going to radically change everything about me. And in theological, soteriological terms, eschatological terms, I mean, I mean theological, what you believe, um, soteriology in terms of, of your salvation, and finally eschatological, where you're going when you die, it has changed everything in ways you won't understand until you're at the end of the journey. But man, you can sit there feeling like it hasn't changed anything. Like a month into it, the old you still the old you. Now, now, uh, Brother Joseph, the way it, it reminds me of this is that I can't, can't tell you how many groups I've taken, you know, to, to summer camp. And everybody at summer camp gets real holy, don't they? Kids who never say the name of Jesus and are talking about Jesus, like literally he's back in the room with them. And I always tell them the same thing, guys, you're not watching TV right now. You don't have your phone right now. All you know is Jesus from the time you get up in the morning till late, late nights. And you're staying up talking about Jesus with your friends. When you get back to your world where you really live, where you hang your hat, it's not going to be that easy. The fire is going to dim in a couple of weeks. You think you're never going back. Now, um, uh, servicemen, who, who served? Who's servicemen in this room? Anybody, anybody was in the service? Anybody? Am I the only one? Yeah, in service. We weren't there. You go. Okay, um, brother Russ. Um, here's the deal. Um, when you get your A and B locker or A and B drawers, whatever they call them, you know, I'm talking about they got all different names, brands of different names. Um, they tell you how to fold your stuff to go in there, right? Like your drawers are four inches across, as measured by a ruler, and they better be four inches and not three point seven five inches. I mean that. And I'll never forget, we're folding that stuff up in there. And I'm 24 years old, so I'm, I'm older than the, most of these guys now. And we're sitting there folding them drawers up and putting them in there and doing all that kind of stuff. And I remember saying that, man, this has changed us so much, we'll be doing this the rest of our lives. At my house, there ain't no four-inch drawers. And you know what? A month after I got out, there were no four-inch drawers either. It didn't change me nearly as... While I'm in the middle of it, it felt like it changed everything. It did not take long to go back to being the same old guy. Now, I was, all, I was a military guy, Joe, so I was going to be military the rest of my life. In some ways, I'm still military right now. There are lots of things I think about that I that just implanted, but all of it didn't stay. All of it didn't make the radical change. The point is this, is that I think we see some change, but what we really crave is so much more. 
is so much deeper and so much better. What we're talking about today is how to see that change really happen. The reason why people are dissatisfied with their faith is because they haven't grown like they're supposed to be. They haven't been discipled like they're supposed to be. They're still feeling that pull from the old way. Now, again, we've, we've discussed this. I think of what a lot of people do when they come to faith in Christ is go on a sin diet. But all they've managed to do is leave a hungry belly. They haven't replaced that desire with something holy, with something of life. They've just given up on the darkness. And what they have is an emptiness. What they have to do is replace eating too much with diet and exercise. Do you understand the difference? Anybody here been on a diet? It's terrible. It's the most horrible thing in the world, isn't it? Because what are you? Hungry all the time. If you could diet without being hungry, everybody diet. Everybody be skin and bones. But you can't diet without being hungry. So what we have to do is to change behavior is not just giving up on something, it's replacing something with something lesser with something greater. There's the difference. So that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to, just, to, to, to understand what it means to have that essence of the newness we have in Christ. We're supposed to have. Now the journey uh, commences in our lives with the initial action of Christ in our hearts. As he describes in John 3, 3, Christ has immense words about it. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So we got into this because we are born again. We were born one way. You were born addicted to sin with a nature that was doomed to sin. And there was no stopping it. From your earliest days, you were bent on your own way, your own selfishness. Like I said, we think it's cute in little kids, don't we? It's sweet. It's kind of funny. But it's not sweet in adults, is it? But adults do the same thing, don't they? We're bent on having our own way. It's born into us. So what happened? We have to be born again. The entrance to the kingdom of God is by way of being made acceptable to that kingdom. The only way I can be counted as one of Christ is for Him to find me acceptable. He has to judge my life. God has to judge my life and find some way to accept me. I am not acceptable the way I am. You were not acceptable the way you were. When God saw you, all He saw was not only every sin you'd ever committed, but every sin you were ever going to commit. The whole thing. Every horrible thing you would ever do. And that was all He saw. It's all He could see. Our birth in sin and our status as children of wrath, like the rest of humanity, make us... Um, Able to be citizens of the make us unable to be citizens of the eternal realm of Christ. Only by the dramatic and supernatural undoing of our birth can men and women gain admittance to the everlasting throne of Christ. God had to do something supernatural. He had to reach down in my heart, see what was lacking, and change me from the heart out. What's wrong with me has always been the power plant. What's wrong with us has always been the nature and the spirit and the heart, the heart of the matter. It's always been wrong. So what does God do? God has to change that. Because if He doesn't, I will always seek help. Always. 
As fast as I can. I'll call it every different name in the world. I'll call it every different thing. I'll do everything I want to do in the world and say it's right. It won't matter. I'll always be on the same path. The very one that my birth demanded. Demanded. But God asks. Guess how? Through regeneration. Through repentance. Through belief. The new birth by the gospel in the Lord. All that's got to happen. When God does that, everything changes. When God acted on my life, when God acted on your life, you change radically from the inside. Now what you're capable of being is different. I'm sorry, folks. The lost man, the lost woman can never be anything but a selfish sinner. It's all they can be. And it's not like we are not selfish. Don't get me wrong. We, we can be something different. We can learn to be something different. The lost man can't learn to not be selfish. The lost man can't learn to not be be a child of darkness. They can't. It's who they are. We can, we are children of light, and we can learn to live like children of light. The prophet Isaiah describes our awakened condition in Isaiah 43, 18 through 19. When he prophesies, he says, Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it brings now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now look, understand, these verses specifically address the renewal of the created order under the purchased earth, the the universal existence that's been won by the victory of Jesus on the cross and through His atoning sacrifice for the sins of the human race. This is what Jesus enables. This is the millennial reign, the, the, uh, the flowering of the desert, the restoration of the created order in Christ Jesus. There's no doubt that's what He's talking about. But in that macro sense, what God's going to do for, the, for, for a creation that's destroyed by sin, He's going to do it for us on the micro level. He's going to do this in my life. Because in the same way, the, the world, the created order, the world itself is cursed. In that same way that that world is uh, destroyed by sin, is fruitless and waterless like a desert, so am I. Now, look, maybe you can't face it. I'll, I don't mind telling you. Folks, when I was lost, I wasn't fitting to be anybody's husband. I wasn't fitting to be someone's father. When I was lost, I wasn't fitting to be a friend to anybody but demons. There's nothing in me that was good. There was nothing in me. Look, I could do accidentally good for people. But there's always going to be something in it for me. I had no way of being altruistic, being self-sacrificing. Never. Not in a million years. Even when I called it self-sacrificing, it was really me sacrificing somebody else. A self was being sacrificed. It just wasn't this self. Couldn't do that. God had to change me. He had to make me acceptable. It describes the awakening pair, uh, a post uh, parousia that will uh, occur when the wilderness is no longer threatening and the desert blooms in new life. At the same time, this is an apt description of what Christ does in the life of a natural sinner, defined by a savage and uncultivated nature that is unable to produce the lasting fruits of holiness. This is who I am. This is what we start with. Without Jesus, this is us. Savage and uncultivated. Savage is it's not just wild, it's dangerous. 
And uncultivated means there's nothing produced. Weeds. My life grew weeds. There was no fruit. Poisonous mushrooms. That's what my life grew. Destruction. Yours too. A river flows in our desert now. A way is made through our wilderness that brings fruit where there's none. And harmony where only chaos, desolation, and ferocity reigned. The incredible transformation in nature that occurs in salvation is from the fact that believers were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We are new because symbolically and theologically and spiritually and emotionally and intellectually, we had to die. We had to die. Now, hey, there's the thing. We talk about this fancy kind of preacherly language, and guys who write the book say this kind of stuff. I'm here to tell you, I don't know if there's any clearer language, because it's the Bible's language. For my life to to show the newness, to be radically changed by a, a brand new walk with Christ... What has to happen is that this guy right here and you in that pew and anybody who's listening has to die to a ton of things. Just die to it. Now, I've used this as an example. So don't tune me out. If somebody, if you're one of those kind of people that once somebody crosses you, you're just kind of through with them. You know what I'm talking about? You might mean, and you might be that one of those kind of people that really means that. What you might have said to yourself was, they are dead to me. What does that mean? They don't exist anymore. They have no power over you. You won't allow them to hurt you anymore. You have turned the page on them and you will never... You've torn that page out and thrown it in the fire. You will never go back there to that ever under any circumstances. Ever. Ever. We have to be dead to so many things. The sin that easily ensnares us as the Scriptures describe it we have to be dead to that sin. I'm going to tell you folks, we've got to go through it with a fine-toothed comb too. Do not assume that what you are comfortable with, the Bible is comfortable with. Do not assume that what you don't think there's a problem with, God doesn't think there's a problem with it. Don't assume that. Let the Bible be the judge of your life and not you by your own preconceived notions. Because I'll be honest with you, we were all of us in this room right here taught some things we should have never been taught. There were some things in our lives that were, that were allowed and encouraged that should have never been allowed and encouraged. You can't just go by what you think to be wrong. Because there are going to be some things in this room right here, folks, even this tiny little crowd, with some things that we think are right that God rages against. That we don't have a problem with, that Christ died to pay for. And we've got no right having anything in our lives that Jesus had to groan to pay for. We have no right. The example of Christ dying and then being raised from the dead serves as an example of what will happen to the believer as they're given the capacity to walk in newness of life. Literally in a fashion of living that we are unable to accomplish without Christ and it is impossible for us to avoid if we've been born again. Now that's, that statement is from me, but there's so much Bible to back that up. Simply put, the sovereign, um, the sovereign control of our God over our sanctification... The fact that it is His will and His purpose for us to be sanctified. But understand this much. I'm not telling you something that you can miss out on. 
I'm telling you something that you may be currently missing out on. But God's going to do this work. It is the work that God does. He's going to transform your life and my life and the life of this church into ambassadors for Christ, into image bearers who will step out in this world and show everyone the love of Jesus. He is going to do that. Whether we want it to happen or not. He's going to do that by chastisement or He's going to do that by grace. One or the other, He is going to do it. It is guaranteed that He will do this. As meek and as tiny as we are, God lovingly spends more time than we want to admit conquering us. Even though we are nothing in comparison to Him. His hand is so gentle, He takes His time to conquer To surrender to the newness of life is to seize and champion the way of Christ that involves more than altering spending patterns or nodding through sermons. Look, it's, it's me being cute. I'd be the first to admit. But after 24 years in the ministry, it's pretty accurate. A lot of, for, for a lot of believers I know, for a lot of believers I know, their faith is summed up by writing a tithe check and nodding along with the pastor. And that's all the impact it's ever had. But you know what's funny about it? I'll say this gladly. Not, not in a mean way, but gladly. God is so merciful that every one of those men or women who are legitimately believers in Christ Jesus... God will always bring them to a point where that veneer, that facade is torn down. One bout of sickness. One bout of financial difficulties. And then where are they? On their knees. What was it Jim Simbola, the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, said years and years ago? All God ever wanted was our attention. Want us to pay attention. Not go through the motions. He wanted every sermon to be revival. Every worship service to be a glimpse of heaven. He doesn't want us to come in here and act like, you know, like decorum rules. But that this to be a, a hospital for the broken. The world can do for that for us. Yeah. The world can get us to write a check. And the world can get us to follow along. It's the easy thing. The world can do that. What the world cannot do is to rad radically change for the better how we interact with others. He can change my personality. I'm not glad by nature. I'm not. I am mealy-mouthed and sour by nature. There's no doubt about that. I am great when things are going well. I was, I was imagining what, what you know, uh, uh, illustration I'd use, some terrible illustrations. It's matter which one it was. I thought to myself, I always wanted to sail. I've never sailed. Always. just looks so cool in movies. I'd love to sail. I don't mean of a boat with a motor. I mean sail. A sailboat. I always wanted to do that. And thought to myself, I'm enough of a nerd that before I went to sail, Brother Mike, I would watch every YouTube video on sailing. I would read every book you could find on sailing. And I would go in there with a rudimentary idea of how this stuff works. But still, I would be able to sail that craft straight as long as I had what we say in the Navy with the fair winds and the following seas. Because it's more than book knowledge. It's more than what I just heard about or read about. 
there's a practicum that takes place in which I've got to really know what I'm doing. So the only time I will be able to do it without someone guiding my every step would be when it was at its easiest place. When anybody could do it. No matter how much they prepared themselves. The Holy Spirit is the one who guides our every step. We interact with others, change how I interact. The ideas that drive us. My principles. My ideals. Everything I've held dear my entire life, God can come in and say trash and trash and trash and throw it all away. All of it. The world can corrupt who my parents made me. can do that all day long. The world cannot remake me the way God can remake me. If my parents made me selfish and wicked, the world has no capacity to undo that. But the gospel can change all of that. The gospel, Brother Russell, doesn't care where you're from, does it? It has one standard. doesn't care if you grew up radically different, does it? It still has one standard. And the gospel is driving us all to live to Christ's standard and not to our own. Not to the one we inherited. Ideas drive us the ethics that define us and the attitudes that display these core principles for the world. Gladness. The durable thankfulness that encompasses our daily joy in Christ. His provision and His blessings is the public face of our private devotion. Look, folks, I know, I know it's not practical for us to walk through this world just overwhelmed with joy all the time. We're not going to. Um, our lives are roller coasters, there's no doubt. There are going to be plenty of days when uh, Brother Mike goes and interacts with the world. When he's going to come home not so full of the joy of Christ, right? Gladness can overwhelm that, though. You can still be glad. You have a terrible day and still be glad. Now, joy may be hampered somewhat because we've yet to realize our eternal joy. Now, gladness is that daily interaction, uh, characterizes the daily interaction with the world. As a glad people, the church demonstrates its eternal faith through defining external attitude. Through a defining external attitude. For the church, we're a glad church. Now, are we? No. Do we need to be? Yes. I'm telling you, folks, and I don't know if any... Look, I, I, know, I know the churches who thought we were. I know the churches that wanted to be. I'm going to tell you that I've never been in one that was. What's the difference? When people walk in your midst and it just feels different. Now, I mean not by any goose pimply little weirdness. I mean it feels different because the people there are just different. Just radically different. Now, look, for some of us who do not have smiley faces unless we try, right? I'm not one of those. I've been accused of being scary. I guess the only reason I'm not is because I'm little. And they get up close and realize he's tiny. I'm not scared of him. I don't have that kind of face. I don't have that kind of personality. But gladness isn't personality dependent. This isn't a skill you're born with. This is a skill that Christ develops. So as a church, man, we've got to, we've got to seek it together as His people. Isaiah teaches in Isaiah 51 verse 11 that the future of the anointed children of Christ will be one of demonstrable gladness, rejected uh, sorrow when he writes, demonstrable gladness and rejected sorrow when he writes that the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion 
with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow. And sighing shall flee away. Once dishonorable men and women are transformed into people who are defined by gladness and joy. Lives that at one time were miserable, grief-filled, and disconsolate can maintain the same essential circumstances and yet be obviously different. Now look, understand this. Please, and, and I, I don't know if it worked in, I don't know what paragraph's in, I feel like I need to say it now. This is durable, but it's understandable. You're going to go through times in your life where gladness can feel very fleeting. You can go through times in your life where you legitimately are struggling. Anyone else in your shoes would struggle. And every one of us goes through that. Every one of us goes through times in our lives where we just don't know where to turn. We look all around us is darkness and we are struggling to see the light of Christ. Everyone goes through that. I understand that we are finite creatures and that we will spend so much time in sorrow. So much of our lives and seasons of our lives are defined by sorrows. Come to a stage in our life where it feels like God has stopped bringing new things into our lives or take things away from us. And it's difficult. So we need Him more. We need Him to teach us how to, how to navigate those times. We need for Him to be more in control of that of that craft than he ever was before. More giving those lessons on a daily basis. The times in which we need God to micromanage every step. Now, I was, I was thinking about it today. Um, I watched this, um, I know I'm over time, so you'll excuse me just a minute more. It won't take long. Um, I was watching the other day this, uh, uh, on, on Amazon this uh, documentary about, about these guys who were you know, looking for some hidden object or something like that. It's archaeology, you know, I'm a nerd. And so a couple of them had dived down in this lake. And I don't know what happened. I don't know exactly what happened. But on the way up, they were got in trouble. And they had to, do, had to ascend faster than they needed to. And one of the guys wound up with the bends so severely that he was crippled. Now, he wasn't. He's back walking now. He was, you know, his, his life wasn't you know, altered completely by that. But they showed that the rehab where this man is literally having to learn to walk all over again. Now this is a 50-year-old man having to learn how to walk. I, I tried it. I, I stood up in my room while I was working on this today and I said, man, to, to take that step forward, I have to lean back imperceptibly on my left foot to stride out with my right. Because if I don't, my heel will catch and I'll fall. I don't think about that anymore. I had to break it down literally second by second just taking a step, how much has to be known just to take one step? The things we take for granted, right? And I think there are times in our life when our gladness has to be rehabbed in the same way. The Almighty Father, in His wisdom and His love for us, takes our hand and teaches us how to be joyous again, how to be glad again. And it's not, it's not burdensome to Him because He knows how we are. He knows how we struggle. And He doesn't mind taking your hand and showing you that, that you can be glad again. You can learn how. Just like that man that learns how to walk at 50, we can learn how to be joyous again. 
In Christ, our lives are no longer the rudimentary product of satisfying desires or happiness-inducing moments, but they are hardwired into the eternal joy of God. The need for worship is indicative of this truth. For the church, worship is the language of gladness, the vehicle by which we model the momentous change in perspective that that the gospel works in the lives of flawed and challenged human beings. Seville D. Martin epitomized this Bible gladness when she wrote, Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is He. His eye is on the sparrow and I know He watches me. His eye is on the sparrow and I know He watches me. Look the refrain in that song. She says, I sing because I'm happy. I sing because I'm free. I don't have any other reason. I sing because I'm happy, because I'm free. Because I know His eyes on the Spirit, I know He watches me. I know that in my deepest darkness, I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not walking through anything for which He has not prepared me. Not merely a spontaneous outpouring of joy in the presence of the supernatural work of God that most of the churches sought and craved, but a daily approach to the world and the Savior that declares the sufficiency of Christ and His gospel. To produce in the believer an enduring life defined by gladness and thanksgiving. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and to preach your word. And I pray, Father God, that I did it rightly. I pray, Father God, for next week, God. I pray, God, that I can build on what you called me to say today, Father. But I pray, Father God, that I wasn't being tried or glib with any of your, of your blessed truth, Father God. But I preached this seriously, Father God, because I know, God, my face has got to change. I know, God, my, the outpouring of my life has got to change, Father God. I know, God, that I can't, that the gladness can't be restrained in your people, Father God, but it's got to be magnified. That no matter what life brings, Father God, that you've got an answer that produces gladness. I don't know all, the, all of it, Father God. I don't know where to find it. I know, God, you've still got to teach it. But I pray, Father God, that you'll continue to teach us, God, exactly what we need to know so we can walk through this life, Father God, with victory and not defeat, Father God, bringing honor and glory to you. We love you, God. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Thank you all.
I can't tell the difference between them anymore. 